Matthew 16, starting with verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gather? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this reading of your precious word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us you would guide us, that, O oh Lord, you would make us like your Son, Jesus, by applying your Word, O oh Lord, to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Sometimes when folks ask me how the church is going or how things are going around here, I like to, I like to compare it to a roller coaster. You know, sometimes uh, uh, I, I remember in seminary once a, a man came to speak in our chapel and he had planted a church and um, I, I resonated with him because I always wanted to do church planning work. And, and he said that during the course of his church planning experience, he never experienced such highs. But through that time, he also never experienced such lows. And oftentimes, those extremes were seemingly only moments apart. And that kind of makes us think of a roller coaster, doesn't it? You know, a roller coaster, it sometimes takes you a little while to get all the way up to the top. But once you're up at the top, I mean, the whole point in the roller coaster is getting to the bottom really fast, isn't it? Uh, in some respects, I think that as we transition from Matthew 15 into Matthew 16, it's almost like being on a roller coaster. You know, last week we were really on a high. We looked at this lovely little trio of grace, faith, and compassion. I mean, just think of those three words together. Isn't that wonderful? Grace, faith, and compassion. Faith is a gift. It's all of grace. Where does grace come from? It comes from the compassionate heart of Almighty God. And we saw that as we were uh, studying Jesus uh, and His... Uh, uh, discourse, the way he handles the Canaanite woman who uh, comes to him and, and heals her daughter. And, and I really believe that you spend some time with that passage, it will become one of your favorite passages in all of Scripture. I can really relate with that Canaanite woman. 
And I, I think that many of you can too as you, as you study that passage. And then Jesus later uh, feeds the 4,000. It was a largely uh, Gentile uh, population. He heals their sick. Uh, we can see the wonderful compassion of God. Now, there's something going on in that, in that text that I don't think we can really recapture because we have grown up uh, knowing about missionary activity. We've grown up understanding that Christianity is to go forth throughout the whole world, but uh, to that first century audience, that was something that was radical. Jesus stepping outside of the boundaries of the nation of Israel and healing uh, people who are not of Jewish descent. Uh, that really displays the compassion of God. So we have grace, faith, and compassion. This beautiful, beautiful trio. That's the high. Uh, this morning we, we look at another trio. Blindness, dullness, and false teaching. I told you it was a value. I, mean, I, I don't know how we could... <laughs> be much more contrasted here, but that's what we come to. We see blindness, we see dullness, and false teaching. Our story begins this morning when the Pharisees and Sadducees come to test Jesus. Verse 1, they're asking for a sign, aren't they? And at first glance, it's, it doesn't seem like it's anything new. We've seen this before, haven't we? You know, back in chapter 12, the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus. They're asking for a sign. doesn't seem like there's anything new here, does it, at first glance. But if we were first, first century followers of Jesus, if we were just first century citizens and residents, we would see that there's something radically unique here. We would actually be quite surprised because the Pharisees, and the Sadducees simply don't mix. Uh, these two groups mix about like uh, the way water and oil mix. They simply do not mix. These two groups have strong convictions, and their convictions are radically different. And they very much <coughs> dislike each other. So if we're seeing this as first century residents of Palestine, and we saw that the Pharisees and Sadducees are, are together uh, against Jesus, that would raise our eyebrows. Uh, A.T. Robertson, commenting on this passage, said uh, that the scribes or the Sadducees and the Pharisees make for very strange bedfellows. And he goes on to say that the fact of the matter is they hated Jesus more than they hated each other. They hated Jesus so much that they were willing to put aside their hatred for each other so that they could align themselves in this alliance to destroy Jesus. Now, notice how Jesus responds in verse 2. He answers them. He says, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. The morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the weather but you're completely blind to what's going on right in front of you. There's a saying, maybe some of you have heard it, uh, I think it goes something like this, uh, red skies at night, sailors delight, red skies in the morning, sailors take warning. Has anybody ever heard that before? Yeah, I figured someone 
her dad. I think I got it right. Did I get it right, Terry? Um, they're able, th these men were able to interpret the weather, but these men weren't called to be weathermen. They were called to be the religious leaders of Israel. They were called to be the civil leaders of Israel. They can interpret the weather, but they can't see what's clearly going on in front of them. Jesus has been going up and down the Holy Land, performing miracle after miracle. And besides that, He's been showing over and over again through His teaching that all of the things that are going on are in fulfillment and in accordance with the Scriptures. Yet these men cannot see it. They're blind. Why are they blind? They're blind because they want to be blind. They're blind because they don't want to see it. So we see blindness going on here. And we, we might even ask ourselves, what is the cause of the blindness? Jesus answers that in verse 4, doesn't He? He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What's the cause of blindness? It's immoral. It's a moral cause. I used to think when I was first starting out in ministry, actually when I really just first starting to share my faith, I wasn't really in ministry as a capacity as a, that I am now. I was just trying to share my faith in a little music store in Calcutta. I used to think that, you know, faith was a philosophical issue. That coming to faith was just coming to grasp a, a philosophical uh, understanding. And uh, little did I know that coming to faith is a moral issue. Uh, unbelief is a moral issue. Uh, to believe or not to believe is an issue of morals. Uh, blindness, spiritual blindness is caused by a hard heart. That's the cause of it. How does Jesus really, at the end of the day, how does He respond to them? He says, no sign will be given. They're asking for a sign, a sign on demand. We might ask ourselves, what kind of sign do you suppose they had in mind? Uh, of course, this is speculative, but the, uh, the, the great preacher of the 4th uh, uh, century, uh, Chrysostom, uh, he claimed that what they were most likely looking for was some kind of solar sign. Uh, bridle the sun or bridle the moon or cause one of the stars to fall from the sky. They were looking for some kind of thing like that. I don't know. That's speculative. But Jesus says no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. Now, when we were back in chapter 12 studying uh, that earlier passage that is largely parallel to this, uh, Jesus gave the same response to the Pharisees and scribes back then. They wanted a sign. And Jesus says, no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, in chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus says, for just as Jonah was in the heart of the great fish for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. What's Jesus referring to? What is the sign? Well, the sign is the sign of His crucifixion, His death, his burial, and His resurrection. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And it's very interesting. We see the hatred here that's mounting towards Jesus. And Jesus has His eye on this hatred. 
The hatred is so great that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would unite. And it is this hatred that will accomplish the sign that Jesus is making reference to. It is this very hatred that in a very short period of time will be used by God to crucify our Lord. And our Lord is definitely aware of that. So we see blindness, great blindness. Our story, our first story ends at verse 4. Jesus leaves, he departs. Verse 5, uh, when the disciples reach the other side, they're, they're back in the boat again, sailing across the Sea of Galilee. They're constantly doing that, aren't they? They're constantly in a boat, sailing back and forth. I think that's the only time they get a break. That really wouldn't be much of a break, though, would it? It's not like you fire up the outboard motor and stick it down in the water and cruise across, you know. When they reach the other side, they become anxious because they discover that they've forgotten bread. And then Jesus makes a comment in verse 6 which adds to their anxiety. He says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this causes them to be even more anxious. They begin discussing the fact that they, they don't have any bread. They're worried about food. They don't have anything to eat. And uh, Jesus makes a comment in verse 8. Uh, aware of this, Jesus said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you don't have any bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves for the 5,000? You don't remember the 4,000? Do you not yet understand? Now, on one end, we read this story and we, we might think to ourselves, this is really amazing. How, how can they be worried about food when they were with Jesus, uh, when he miraculously fed 5,000 men besides women and children? You remember that story, Jesus, uh, the, the, Jesus is teaching them, uh, teaching this large crowd, the day grows old. One of the disciples say, you know, we, we need to dismiss these folks so that they can go get something to eat. Jesus says, well, you feed them. So what? You feed them. So we don't have food for a crowd this size. They gather up what they have. Jesus gives thanks for it. He blesses it. And, and miraculously, that food is is uh, a plentiful enough that everyone eats and gets their fill and there's plenty left over. I'm sure the disciples indulged in that food just like everybody else. We're told that they were all full. They were all satisfied. They didn't have any food. Jesus took care of it. And if that wasn't enough, the, almost exactly the same thing happens with the feeding of the 4,000. There's some differences. We looked at those. Uh, there's some differences, but Jesus did it again. And now here they are, they don't have any food, and they're anxious about the fact that they don't have anything to eat. And we could think to ourselves and we could say, isn't this amazing? How could they be so dull? Slow to perceive. Slow to understand. We could think that way until we make the application to ourselves. <laughs> Are we not the same way? Someone might object and say, well, you know what, if I was there, if I could have been there, you know, if I could have been there, <laughs> I wouldn't have been dull and understanding. 
But I wasn't there. I mean, they actually saw these things happening. Well, before we go there, let's, let's see what we do have here. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the agency of the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart in a greater capacity than what they had. Yes, they had Jesus with them. But they did not have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the capacity that every, the least in the kingdom of God has right now. They did not have that. They did not have the New Testament either. We have the Holy, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any period of time, He's already blessed you. He's already taken you uh, through a number of different circumstances that have been difficult. As soon as we get saving faith, it's tested almost immediately. But how quickly can we forget how God has blessed us in the past? And we can demonstrate that with our anxiety. I mean, really, none of us should ever be anxious about material things, should we? Yet, sometimes we are, aren't we? We forget what God has done for us. We forget His promises. We're dull. We're slow to perceive. But isn't it wonderful that Jesus is patient? Notice how patient He is with them. He's, only, he's bringing this to their attention for their benefit here, but... He's so patient with the disciples. Jesus is the same today as he was then. He doesn't change. And as we see Jesus being patient with them, we can know that Jesus is equally patient with us. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That Jesus is patient with us. We have blindness. We have dullness. What do we have next? False teaching. Verse 11, Jesus says, How is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak about bread, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 12, then they understood. He did not tell them about bread. He was telling them about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus is using a metaphor. He's speaking figuratively, and it's a brilliant metaphor. Uh, leaven, when it's put into a lump of dough, what happens? It permeates through the whole thing, doesn't it? You know, we could think of it as like poison in a stew. You know, if we had this big cauldron of stew and someone had a little eyedropper of poison and they just went in on one side and dropped the poison over here on this one side, would anybody like dip their cup on the opposite side and take some stew? Who'd like to go first? We don't do that. Why? Because if you put a little bit of poison in this stew, what happens? It... It ruins the whole thing, doesn't it? Isn't that a brilliant metaphor for false teaching? A little bit of false teaching goes a long ways, doesn't it? That's why Jesus is saying, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees or of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we might ask ourselves this question. I think this is the next question we should be asking. But what specifically, what specific teaching is Jesus talking about here? There, to answer questions like that, there are three things that are very important. You might want to write these things down. There are context, context, and I'll give you the third one, context. Context. 
Not all of you reach for a pen. You're getting to know me too well. <laughs> there are actually two types of contexts here that we really need to be aware of to understand this. One is the cultural context. The other is the literary context. Let's start with the cultural one. If we were first century uh, residents of the area, there's some things that we'd know about the culture that wouldn't have to be explained to us. Some things about the Pharisees that we would know, there are things about the Sadducees that we would know. For starters, the Pharisees had a lot of things going for them. They were considered holy men. They, if anyone was going to make it to heaven, it was the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They believed that the Hebrew Bible was the Word of God. They believed in supernatural revelation. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the promised Messiah, that God has promised to send a Savior that will restore Israel. They believed these things. The Sadducees, on the other hand, uh, they did not believe in the miraculous. Uh, they didn't believe in supernatural revelation. Uh, they did not believe in the resurrection. When we get to Matthew 22, we'll see that that's explicitly stated. They did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that the here and now is the sum total of everything, that everything is about right here and right now. As we go through this list of things, we can see that... Uh, this teaching is still alive and well, isn't it? How often do we make everything about what's happening right now as if there isn't any life afterwards? As if this is it? That's really where a lot of the anxiety comes from that men and women and children suffer from. It's because there's a particular problem. It might be a great problem, uh, but it's the sum total of it all. I mean, if this... If this doesn't get fixed, then there's just no point in going on. That's the Sadducees. I, whether they believed in the Bible is controversial. Some say that they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. There's some controversy about that. But if you didn't believe in the miraculous, could you even believe in the first five books of the Bible? I think that would be pretty tough. You know, creation is a miracle. That all of this was created out of nothing. Sarah and Abraham's conceiving, conception of a son at such an old age is a miracle. A bush burning on fire but not being consumed is a miracle. The plagues on uh, Egypt, miracles. Parting of the Red Sea. I mean, you just go down through the list. We'll all be problematic. Perhaps they looked for scientific explanations to explain it all. I don't know. But this is the cultural context here that we can see is still alive and well. The Pharisees were, in many respects, the legalists. But they were quite conservative. I remember when I was looking for a place to study, I, uh, having grown up in, uh, in a denomination that was so liberal, I wanted to find the most conservative place I could find, thinking that uh, the more conservative it is, the better, not realizing that there really is a ditch on both sides of the road. A lot of times when we discover danger, we're going down the road and we, and we, we, have, to, we have to change our route. A lot of times we swerve violently. We swerve too far. There is a ditch on both sides of the road. You, uh, in conservative circles, there sometimes can be a legalism that's just as ugly as the legalism that would exist anywhere else. 
And the Pharisees were very much uh, your conservative, I think, conservative legalists, where the Sadducees were kind of your modernists, if you will, your liberal modernists. So we have those two poles. That's the cultural background here, the cultural context. Now the literary context, which is so very, very important. What do I mean by that? Well, the, the, it's the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, chapter 16 is not in a vacuum. It exists between 15 and 17. And as we try to figure out what teaching Jesus has in mind here, well, let's just think for a moment uh, what's been going on. Let's uh, start with the Sadducees. Uh, well, the Sadducees are only mentioned in chapter 3, and we may even have forgotten about them being mentioned in chapter 3. They come out to see John the Baptist, and they're not mentioned again until Matthew 16. But the Pharisees are coming up all over the place, aren't they? And the leading thing I think that we can see about the Pharisees as they come up is they're always hostile to Jesus. They're expecting a Messiah, but they don't believe Jesus is that Messiah, even in the midst of all the divine revelation that's taking place. And I think that gives us a clue as to why Matthew inserted uh, verses 13 through 20 of Matthew 16. What is the next passage that we're going to study? It's Peter's famous confession that Jesus is the Christ. So as we're thinking about uh, the teaching that Jesus has in mind, the context is clearly leading us in that direction, isn't it? It's this consistent refusal to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But that's not all. In chapter 15, which we studied a few weeks ago, uh, we see that the Pharisees were very fond of their tradition, weren't they? So much so that they had elevated and exalted their tradition to where it was above the Word of God, the authority of their tradition. You remember, uh, they're, they're criticizing Jesus' disciples because they didn't wash their hands before they eat. There was no command in the Old Testament for that. They weren't breaking any commands. They weren't violating anything. What they were violating was their tradition. And they were binding people's conscience with their tradition. And Jesus calls them hypocrites, and he applies Isaiah to them. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And verse 9 here says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They were adding to the word of God. They were elevating their tradition above the word of God, making the word of God answer to their tradition. That's dangerous teaching. That is really dangerous teaching. And Jesus is commanding us to watch for this thing and to beware of this thing. Church tradition in itself is not a bad thing. We have to have some kind of tradition. We have tradition here. As young as this ministry is, there are traditions. And when those traditions begin to become elevated to where the Word of God has to answer to them, we're in trouble. We're in big-time trouble. So Jesus is telling us to watch and beware. Well, the application is really simple. It's really easy. Many, 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 many 
of the leading religious leaders, pastors, and teachers are of this stock. They are of this stock. We, we have to be very careful. Popularity, remember this, popularity is not a reliable credential. Popularity is not a reliable credential. If you want to write anything down, that might be something to write down. Just because someone has an exalted position does not in and of itself mean that they're the real deal. Just because someone has a bunch of books to their credit does not mean that what they teach is faithful to the Word of God. Just because someone is pastoring a very large church does not in and of itself mean that they're faithful in their teaching. Just because a person has a bunch of degrees does not mean that they're faithful. So at the end of the day, how do we evaluate a teacher? We evaluate a teacher by his fidelity to the Word of God. That's how I want you to evaluate me. By my fidelity to the Word of God. And if you ever find me swerving, please call me aside. Please call me aside. Because at the end of the day, when, when, when this is all said and done and, and uh, my time is up, I don't know that I really care if, if this church is really that big. I don't really care about that. I'll tell you what I do care about. I care that, I, I hope that it becomes large enough that the congregation can call somebody to replace me. That I do care about because I want this ministry to live beyond myself. But that, that's really all I care about. What I, what I really, really care about though is that I was faithful to the Word of God. Is to me, that's what a successful ministry is. Was I a reliable preacher and teacher who taught the Word of God? That means everything to me. And that's how we have to evaluate the books that we read, the sermons we listen to, and the people that we follow. That's why we... That's why we have this book. We've got blindness. We've got dullness. We've got false teaching. What a, what a dark trio. Where's the grace? Oh, the grace is everywhere. The grace is everywhere. I've already alluded to it. The hatred that's behind that blindness is the very thing that Christ will use to save your souls and used to save my soul. That's grace. He uses that hatred. It's that hatred that crucifies him. It's that hatred that accomplishes his death, his crucifixion. That makes possible the resurrection, doesn't it? It accomplishes salvation. But you know, there's some other grace that I want to leave you with here. 
Notice how Jesus is protecting us. I, I don't think there's too many things that are more lovely than when someone who's stronger than you comes to your side to protect you. Has anybody ever had that experience? Maybe you were being bullied as a kid in school or something, and somebody who's older than you and more stronger than you comes to your side because they like you, they care for you, they love you, and they protect you. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying to his people, watch and beware. This is dangerous. And how is he protecting us? He's opening up his heart so that we can come to know him because this is how, this is how we'll, be, we'll ultimately be protected. Is the better we know Jesus, the greater our sensitivity will be to false teaching. And it's impossible to know Jesus better without knowing his word better. The better we know the word of God, the better we'll know Jesus. And the better we know Jesus, the more sensitive we'll be to this false teaching and preaching that is all around us everywhere as you begin to see it you will see it everywhere that's grace isn't it jesus is stronger than us you see how he protects us heavenly father lord we thank you and we praise you you're such a great and wonderful and awesome god protector you speak the truth O oh lord you desire worship Worshippers who will worship you in spirit and truth. And we see the grace, O oh Lord. There's plenty of blindness. We've been guilty of that. There's dullness. We are guilty of that. There's false teaching. Let us watch and be aware. But, O oh Lord, we see our protector, our Savior. O oh Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.